with a play that is at once one of her oldest and newest, having just received an acclaimed New York debut after recent productions in Washington, D.C. and New Haven. Today's guest has proven once again why she was labeled a genius by the MacArthur Foundation. She has dazzled audiences across the country with her stories of compulsive cleaners, crucifixion reenactors, devotees of an early cure for female hysteria, dead men and the legacy left by their favorite electronic tool, and so many more. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to spend an hour with playwright Sarah Rule. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I want to start by asking you about a quote. John Lahr did a piece on you in The New Yorker a couple of years ago, and as I read through it, I, I found this fascinating. You said, everyone has a great, horrible opera inside him. Could you tell me what that means? Well, I think they do. I, I mean, I think I I said that when we were discussing realism and the way in which in my plays I'm trying to, in a way write a kind of realism of the soul. I mean, not, not to sound overblown, but, but the notion that subjectively we're all singing arias all the time about this, the most minute and the largest things of our lives. But somehow on stage, in terms of a, 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 um, some kinds of flattened out realisms, it's as though we're so small and, and so... Um, so mundane some of the time. So so anyway, it was it was a way of saying I'm trying to um, be honest about uh, the extremes of the inner life. Hmm. I, I just wondered about the choice of opera because, of course, you don't write operas. You write <laughs> plays. And, mm-hmm. and so I wondered why a great and horrible opera versus a great and horrible play or a short story or a poem, an epic poem, mm-hmm. perhaps – I'll take epic poem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't even like opera that much, to be honest. But I think the reason I said opera is because opera has that kind of um, spectacular theatricality and that I think in some ways our theater has, has not had so much in the last 50 years. I mean, not across the board, but in terms of a kind of mainstreaming of, of um, plays that are imitating television. Hmm. Since you talk about spectacular reality, um, let's talk about Passion Play. Now, Passion Play, you wrote the first two acts while you were a student? That's true. It's crazy to think of, but it was my first full-length play. I was at Brown at the time studying with Paula Vogel, and I had this idea for play, and I said, Paula, I I want to write a play about a guy who plays Pontius Pilate every year, and um, he wants to play the role of Christ. And she gave me this look and said, I think you should write that play. And so she read 10 pages a week um, when I was, I guess, 21 or 22. I mean, it must have been 22 until I'd finished it. And then she snuck it into the New Plays Festival at um, Trinity Rep. And I just kept going. I, I think I was just obsessed with the notion of passion plays, and I couldn't stop until it was three hours long and 14 years later. Well, was it continuous or was it you wrote those first two acts and then a number of years later felt the need to revisit it? The latter. Although I did I did rewrite Act 2 quite a bit. I mean, I think the, the draft I wrote when I was 22 is quite a bit different than the draft I have now. 
why do you think you so many playwrights finish a play, see it produced at some level, um, and are done with it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, very often I ask playwrights in the case of revivals, have they gone back and changed anything? You're a different person. The world has changed in, in would you said, 14 years mm-hmm. since you first wrote it. What what was the, the thing that just continued to fascinate you? Well, I was raised Catholic, so I think that mythology was imprinted on me at an early age. And so I think those things don't go away easily. So in terms of exercising some of those um, – philosophical questions or ghosts or I, I, I don't know what you would call it. I'm, I'm sure I'm not quite done with that. But the other reason I wrote the third part was um, it was commissioned around the time George Bush was in office and we were at war. And I was so horrified by the the dialogue between the religious right and the rest of the country. And, um, and so, so looking at Spearfish, South Dakota – seemed like this great crucible to talk about what was going on in the country at the time. Um, and I think I was very angry when I wrote that first draft. And I'm not sure that's – I think it was a Virginia Woolf said of Charlotte Bronte that she didn't write well when when she wrote angrily. I, I don't know if that's true in general. I suppose there are some great angry plays. But I think it's also taken me some time to rewrite – that draft with a little bit of um, philosophical distance. And, and of course, the political climate is different now than it was when I wrote it. Well, we should explain for those who haven't had a chance to see the play that it centers around, in each of the acts, three different companies presenting the passion play, the story of Jesus and and ultimately the crucifixion. But it's not it's not about Jesus. It's always about the company and the society in which the passion play is being produced. Is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, that's great to say. And I, I think it's well worth saying because I think sometimes people look at the title passion play and are sort of horrified like, ah, I don't want to see a passion play and I don't want to see a passion play either. Um, but it's it's really more about theater and the act of portraying these biblical characters than it is a passion play itself. Well, in fact, in in the production at Epic Theater Ensemble, which is just concluded here in New York, they very specifically are billing it as Sarah Rule's passion <laughs> right. play. Um, certainly to distinguish it from the Gospels. Right. Um, and indeed from Peter Nichols' passion play, which is a play that is not about Jesus at all, yeah. but uses that title. And when it was... produced on Broadway, they specifically called it Passion Mm -hmm. because they thought people might confuse it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I kept playing with titles. I kept wishing that I were Tony Kushner and could write like some brilliant subtitle and I I kept trying to write some subtitle to differentiate it from both of those other works and it just fell flat because I think ultimately I'm such a utilitarian about titles and and so it just it's always been passion play and it always will be passion play i can't think of anything else what do you mean by utilitarian about titles well i've always loved how abstract expressionist painters can just call painting untitled number two or blue or red or untitled 10 or series of what you know and with plays you have to come up with something a little more um alluring for people to buy tickets but like my play eurydice called Eurydice, about Eurydice. 
Um, you know, most of my plays are kind of like that. Hmm. Interesting. So with Passion Play, now it was done in this new play festival. Did it get done a lot subsequent to that? No, not really. Um, part of it was that I was still working on it, so I hadn't kind of disseminated it. Um, but part of it is it's a really large scope. It's 12 characters and it's three hours, and so it takes a lot of... Well, we should say it's 12 actors and many more characters, actually. That's right, many more characters. And, in fact, we have um, some apprentices who are who are, who are are doing other things in, in this play. So, so it's big, and I think it takes a lot of... Um, you know, manpower for a theater to put it up, or 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 you can do a poorer version, which is something I love about the way we're doing it now. So um, anyway, well, again, by poorer version, I mean having having seen this production, yeah. it's I mean there's a lot of looks they look like theatrical road boxes being mm-hmm. moved around they to are, create yeah. some of the setting, and it's not constant realistic representations. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes just chairs and road boxes and, and a few props. And the funny thing about that approach is Mark Wing Davy and I had done the play in London, um, gosh, seven years ago or so, maybe less. I'm so bad with time. Anyway, we had about 200 pounds and we just did act one and two because part three hadn't been written. And it was so beautiful the way Mark staged it and the actors were fantastic English actors and they donated their time. And I think when Mark did it in Chicago at the Goodman, he essentially wanted that production. But we had this huge budget at the Goodman. So essentially Mark wanted chairs and a table. Um, So they built these really expensive chairs and and a table. Um, But then he got sort of fancy and got a projectionist from Berlin to create these extraordinary projections, which we we don't have at the church. But um, I think we've always wanted to do it in a simple way. And so... What's great about this production in the church is um, we have these road boxes and then we have the church, which is an old church with this incredible history. It used to be a stop in the Underground Railroad and these stained glass windows are extraordinary. And so you have the Beatitudes, which have been sitting there for, I don't know, 200 years in gold leaf and the designers just chose to leave everything as is. So you don't really need that much more. Yet the space, I mean, it's it's not like being... You're certainly not in a cathedral. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a decommissioned church yeah. I, uh, at this point. And the seating was almost like being in an auditorium mm-hmm. is more what it felt like. So it was it, – it simultaneously brought in pre-existing religious elements that, that you utilized and on the other hand was very rudimentary mm-hmm. in, its, in its way. Um, this wasn't written – I don't believe as a site-specific work. So, was the church a happy accident, or was it an intent for this production to find a space that might have its own history? It was the intent. I mean, I'd done it at the Goodman and Yale and Arena, and when, when Epic wanted to do it in New York, Epic doesn't have a home theater. So, I said, why don't we find a really interesting architectural site that will have some history and some meaning since we're not going to be spending a lot of money on a on scenic design. Hmm. Now, you mentioned Mark Wing Davy doing it at the Goodman, Mark Wing Davy directing it, working on it with you in London. He did – did he do the arena production? No, that was Molly Smith. Okay, but he did do the New Haven production yeah. and, of course, he's done the production here. 
doing the same show, even as the show evolves with the same director, seems like a lot of times Mm -hmm. you've done it. Is there a benefit to that continued collaboration? And where did stepping out of that for a moment and doing it with Molly, Mm -hmm. um, how did that affect the, the growth of the play? Well, I love doing something four times with the same director. I mean, Mark is so brilliant, and he just keeps deepening. And what I love about him is he's almost like a like a kid. He he goes at things with a complete intellectual freshness every time. And so I think everything just keeps keeps deepening in a way that, that it can't when you have three weeks to throw up a, a new play. When I did it with Molly, she was this fearless leader, and she commissioned the third act, and so just getting the thing up in that form. It was the first time I'd written the thing as one evening was just this Herculean labor. And then when Mark and I did it, the Goodman, I don't think I had enough previews to finish my rewrites. Hmm. And then at Yale, I felt I finally finished the rewrites, but I mean, I think I'm finally done now. It's, it's going into publication and I'm still tweaking things here and there, but once it's published, I usually let it alone. Hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's, Jump back to because we've already we've already talked about you going to college and and studying with Paula Vogel, but we've we certainly skipped over some things. Um, as I mentioned to you before we started taping, you're one of the rare guests where I probably know a little more about your formative years because you contributed to the Wings book, the play that changed my life. But um, you grew up uh, in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And your mom was was very interested in theater. Yeah. I mean, she still acts. She got a Jeff. I'm always very proud to say she got a Jeff in Chicago. That's Chicago's version of a, I don't know, an Obi or a, a Tony, I suppose, um, mm-hmm. in Chicago. And um, she took me to the theater from a really young age, and I used to sit in back and watch. And she directed sometimes, and sometimes she was in the play. So I, and there's no way I'd be doing this had she not taken me to the theater since I was five. Was she taking you to stuff that was age appropriate? <laughs> Probably not. Um, no, I mean, they never really made those distinctions, either of my parents. They took us to, to anything. Hmm. So did you, I mean, so many kids when they see theater and your mom was acting and they see a parent, they think, well, I want to do that someday. Mm-hmm. Um did you want to act? No, actually, I always wanted to be a writer from a very young age, and the theater was this fantastic distraction and something I loved. But it never occurred to me to be an actor. I never had that temperament, um, and so I, I wrote short stories and I wrote poetry. But it was really in college where I realized that playwriting was a kind of marriage of of interest for me. How did the realization come? I mean, certainly, since you were not, it wasn't a case of you were suddenly introduced to theater in college. You say you've been going since you're five years old. Um, If you've been writing, how did you suddenly realize that this was actually the right form? It was really Paula Vogel. I mean, I took a class with her sort of as a lark, but I always intended to continue writing poetry and fiction and – and maybe becoming a scholar of sorts. And I think I, I came to Paula with this idea for a grad, graduate thesis um, 
representations of the actress in the 19th century novel it was. It sounds so dry now. Anyway, I said, Paula, will you advise this thesis? And she said, no, dear, but if you write a play, I'll advise your thesis. And that's when I wrote Passion Play. And I remember this feeling of great liberation. I think I was walking down the street in Providence and it was a fall day and I was walking down some hill and just unbuttoning my coat and feeling so liberated that I could write a play and didn't have to write this thesis on 19th century novels. Hmm. Now, one thing I think I may have skipped over, um, you spent time at the Piven Theater Workshop. Mm-hmm. And was that while you were a teenager? or I was kind of from fourth grade and, and oh, in high school, that, yeah. too. Yeah. T- talk a little bit about what that mm-hmm. workshop is, because outside of Chicago, I'm not sure people know about it, but it certainly has extraordinary alumni. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because now Joyce and Byrne Piven are known as the parents of Jeremy Piven, which is, you know, fantastic. But in their own right, they're really incredible teachers and Byrne has died. But Joyce was my teacher from a young age. So I, I, I guess I did act, but I never thought of myself as someone who would be an actress. I just loved the process of it. And they really do a lot of improvisation and story theater. And so I think in in that Chicago school of story theater, like Joyce Piven and Frank Galati and Mary Zimmerman to some extent, narrative and language is really important. Um, and at the Piven Theater Workshop, there were no, there were no sets. There was no, um, you know, when they did plays, there wasn't usually a huge budget. So from from a young age, I grew up with this concept that language is paramount in theater, and um, talking directly to the audience is totally a totally natural thing to do. Hmm. But convinced you you were not going to be a performer. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I had little parts here and there, but I think I, I knew that I preferred being a writer in the sense that when the audience came, I was always like, oh, God, I don't want to be in front of an audience. I loved rehearsal. And so I think being a playwright, it's the best of both worlds because you get to sit and watch and be in rehearsal. And when the audience starts coming regularly, you can go home. <laughs> Your job is done. Hmm. So now to come back to post the first production of Passion Play, Paula was your advisor. She got you into this new play festival at Trinity Rep, which just any playwright being in a new play festival at Trinity Rep, that's an achievement for someone who's still in school. It's even more so. Um, What was the next step for you? Gosh, well, I saw that performance and Peter Dubois directed it, who's now at the Huntington. He did a beautiful job. And so I think seeing that performance was really seminal was really sort of, oh, okay, so this is what I'm going to be doing. And then I I went I moved back to Chicago after I graduated and I I had some odd jobs and I taught in the public schools and I went to artist colonies and wrote and um, just started sending my work out. So I mean I, it's a long it's a long road, a lot of rejection letters, you know, before getting productions. Yes, because one thing, I mean, it's not that suddenly your next play was at Trinity Rep. No. It's not that Trinity Rep mounted the truly full production because this was part of the festival. Right. Um, so it really was sort of beating the bushes to get people to to read your play. So your plays. So what what was the what was the production what was the theater that really then said, yes, we'd like you? I think it was Madison Repertory Theater. 
they were the first regional theater to kind of pay me money to do my play, and it was Eurydice. And what was the experience of having a full production? Well, it was kind of amazing. I mean, kind of amazing to work with designers. And I mean, I still remember sitting around a table looking at the costume designs and being so thrilled. I mean, I'd never been involved in a process like that before. Um, And terrifying, too, that (laughs) first production. How? Oh, God, just um, fear of total failure and humiliation, which is, I think, always, always the fear. Hmm. And it's interesting that as we look at these plays, whether it's passion play, which certainly has had the longest journey throughout your career, you know, but it's it's fourteen years from from Trinity to well Brooklyn to, <laughs> right. to New mm-hmm. York City, though um, Eurydice first seen two thousand three at Madison Rep, not seen until 2007 at second stage, but with other productions along the way. How much were you looking towards, I want to get a show into New York, because you were getting major regional theater productions? I would have loved a show in New York. I mean, I think the hilarious thing about my career is that I think at heart I'm a downtown playwright, and if I'd had my druthers, like a Soho rep had wanted to do my work, 10 years ago, I would have been so thrilled, and they just never did. So as a result, you know, I had these kind of big regional theater productions, and then the Times, I think, reviewed a couple of them. And then Second Stage or um, some of the others then had, the, um, I think, the courage to do them because they'd already had the imprint of the Times. But, um, you know, Lincoln Center was my first... um, the first theater to really produce me in New York, so I'm not, and I was spoiled for life after that because they're so wonderful to work with. But you said something interesting. These big regional theaters, you know, again, Soho Rep does wonderful work, but there is a scale that mm-hmm. can be done at places like certainly Berkeley, Yale Rep, Arena Stage. I'm just looking at, at some of these. Yeah. So you were able to see your work realized on a scale that if you had come up through the downtown theaters, Mm -hmm. that would have been an evolution. Yeah. It's hilarious, though, because, I mean, this Brooklyn production, in a way, is like coming home finally for me in New York because I think I always wanted my plays to be done in an intimate setting with with a diverse audience where you feel right up close to the actors. And I never really had that experience in Hmm. New York or the regions. Hmm. In all of this, with all of these productions and all these regional theaters, one of the things I've always heard for a young author is how do they figure out who they want directing their plays? Mm. And how did you discover the ideal collaborators? Because as I looked certainly at some of the major productions, you've worked with a number of excellent directors on different plays, certainly the long-term relationship with Mark Wing Davy. But how did you find the people? How did you decide who was right to do your plays? I think it's so hard, um, and I really think it is like dating. And I think I was just lucky that I met Mark at Sundance um, and loved him, and we just kept working together. And I met Les Waters in California and we just kept working together. Um, Jessica Thebus in Chicago, I've known for, I don't know, 
longer than I've been writing plays. She also was at the Piven Theater Workshop, and I just, you know, when I have a draft, I just send her one. So when I find people I love, I just cleave to them and hope to work with them over and over again. Since you commented about your first New York production, I'm, I'm scanning here quickly, but Clean House here in New York was just a couple of years, maybe three years ago now. Um, you certainly had a signal event for anyone in their life, and certainly for Young Playwright, which was to be honored with the MacArthur Foundation grant, or as it is commonly and perhaps dangerously known, <laughs> Danger- yeah, a genius grant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that drew, on the one hand, it drew enormous attention to you. As you say, if you wanted to get your plays seen, suddenly every theater in America, if they hadn't already read them, went said, well, who's Sarah Rule? Let's get her plays. The other thing is it gave you a foundation of income mm-hmm. that would allow you, we so often hear about playwrights who have to do all of this other work in order to to hone their craft or or even find the time to write. It gave you freedom. What what was all of that impact? Well, it's such an incredible gift and luxury to, to just write plays because I think a lot of – well, when you're not successful, you have to do all kinds of other jobs. And then when you're successful, the first thing people want to do is for you to write in other genres. They say, oh, oh you're capable of writing a play. Why don't you write a screenplay or TV or musical now? which is so ironic as though playwriting is just some great audition to do something else. So I think the MacArthur allowed me to just do exactly what I wanted because I thought, well, I have I have these five years to write exactly what I want, and really it would be a betrayal of that, um, of that gift to, to do anything for any other reason. Do you think it also raised a set of expectations that you had to work either harder to meet or just be more aware of what what others were expecting from you? Yeah, I think there's a terrible lot of expectation that comes along with it. And I don't read reviews, but I, I you know, my, my husband or mother reads them and I, I you know, semi-aware of how the MacArthur gets used sometimes, you know, in, in, in nasty ways, but... You know, I'm still so happy I, I got one. Hmm. In the wake of that, I mean, I made an assumption. Did it indeed spur more productions? I think so, yeah. And with that, certainly the clean house came right around the same time here in New York. Um did you feel more opportunity to write expansively? Did you did it change things that you were thinking about that you'd be interested in? I don't think so. I think it had a more practical effect. I mean, who knows? It's hard to analyze your own content and where it comes from, but in a very practical sense, I had just had a baby also when I moved to New York, so it gave me real psychological permission to get daycaring, you know, spend money on that and feel like I'm a working writer and I need to spend time writing. I think it's so hard um, as a mother and a writer to separate the two and to do that, but somehow the MacArthur gave me this great luxury. Hmm. 
The Clean House was the first of your plays that I had the opportunity to see, and it was that production here in New York. And it struck me simultaneously as having these realistic elements, which we spoke about at the beginning, and some really fantastical elements that were not necessarily um, – that certainly weren't liter- – that they were literalized on stage of things that were incredibly imaginative and unrealistic. Um, how do you – how do you balance the reality with – if not the fantasy, the the flights of fancy that I've seen you go on in in a number of your plays. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I wrote about this in your book a little bit about early influences, but I love Shakespeare's romances so much. And, um, you know, a person can turn into an ass. People can fall in love with the forest in an instant. Then they can fall out of love in an instant. I mean, I think that was all my bread and butter growing up. So I think people think of or sometimes try to categorize my work as either being magical realism or being like kind of weird and avant-garde. But but to me, it comes out of this sort of ancient um, literary tra- tradition of romance or um, or the, the absurd. And I just think we don't we don't see that much of it. So it seems strange to us. But to me, it I guess my mom also was such a fan of Ionesco growing up. So she would be marching down into the kitchen reciting the maid speech about having one brown eye and one blue eye. You know, so that was all. Was she performing or just <laughs> running her lines? I mean, was it kids? I'll be down in a minute and we're doing... No, oh, there this. was no distinction in my household wow. between those two things, really. But, um, I've forgotten the word you just used, but, um, you know, certainly your plays do deal with with to some degree myth some of your plays um and and ancient stories whether it's passion play certainly Eurydice is is drawn is there something about older tales that you're drawn to and wanting to reinterpret them I think so I mean I think myth in general interests me in the theater because I think that's the foundation of our of our theater the notion that the stories have a larger reverberation if they've been told many times and if many people know them. So uh, the author is it's, – it's less this cult of the original story and the author as um, a cult of originality and more about these common ancient principles. Um, so – I think the other reason I was drawn to older stories and periods for a while was I wasn't really interested in how people talk these days. I found it boring, contemporary speech. And because I started as a poet, I was interested in a more heightened language on stage. And so I thought, okay, well, no one knows how people talk in the afterlife. I'll write a play about dead people. Or no one really knows how Elizabethan spoke. So I wrote Passion Play and started in that era. And I think the longer I write, the more I think, well... I can have people talk however I want them to talk. It doesn't matter when they're living. Right, because certainly in passion play in, in the earlier periods, you're not attempting to pretend – have these people pretend that they're aping a more archaic form of speech or in fact you know, you're writing one of – act two is set in Germany. There's right. no attempt to use Germanic accents or, right. or, or any of those idioms. So – 
in that sense, you're you're not a slave to mm-hmm. what came before. It's it's just it's a springboard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the vibrator play dealing with the 19th century. I didn't want to be wedded to a kind of period costume drama, but but I also felt like that era gave me a little permission to have people speak in a slightly heightened way. Hmm. Well, since you bring that play up, uh, actually, I'm, I'm going to wait with that play. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about Dead Man's Cell Phone, um, which did come earlier. I mean, again, I'm not doing this interview chronologically because what's been so interesting is that your plays have followed such paths that when they've been seen, in some cases by the largest audience, is not the first time mm-hmm. it's been done or even the fourth or fifth. Mm-hmm. They've, they've, they've wound their way. Um, Dead Man's Cell Phone, I've read that you was inspired by an image of a dead man in a cafe. But when I read that, it didn't say whether this was something you'd actually seen, something that was a photograph or artistic representation or simply something that popped into your head? Something that popped into my head. Hmm. Just a dead man at a cafe with his phone ringing and ringing and ringing. Because certainly for a playwright, um, when the first character you think of is dead, (laughs) it seems you might have the potential of having already written yourself (laughs) into a corner. Right. That's funny. How did, you know, how did you then expand upon it and decide that it wasn't it wasn't so much the dead man's play mm-hmm. but it's the person who finds the phone and who goes over and you know it's like the person walking by a phone booth and and picks up the call that's mm-hmm. that's really where the play sprang starts off mm-hmm. i never know where i'm going when i start the play to be honest i mean i think a lot of playwrights use outlines or they know the ending and then they go back and for me I always have a starting point, whether it's an image or a premise or even just how someone speaks. And then I'm hoping that if I surprise myself in the act of writing, hopefully the audience will be surprised in the act of watching or the actor will have enough. There will be enough life and spontaneity for the actor to connect to it. And then, you know, afterwards I go back and deal with structure, but I usually never know. So not to ask the question I have avoided for hundreds of programs, where do you get your ideas? Mm -hmm. But going back now to some of the plays that we've spoken about, what were the initial images or language that set you off first on the passion play? Mm -hmm. Wow, the passion play, that's really going back. Well, Well, passion play was a premise. The passion play... It was this notion of a guy who kept playing Pontius Pilate who wanted to play the role of Christ. Hmm. Um, that's how that one started. But I also read, is this true, that that you as a child had a book yeah. about kids going to see the Passion Play? It's true. I have, I have this favorite childhood book that some women who are listening will connect with called Betsy Tacey. And I even was a member of the Betsy Tacey Society. <clears throat> My sister and I, I won the trivia contest in the Chicago area chapter meeting in, <laughs> I don't know, in the 1990s. But we reread these over and over and over again. And um, Anna Quinlan, I think, is a member of the <laughs> society because they went out of print, so it was – This sounds like a secret society because I've never <laughs> heard of this. <laughs> sure but not. I do wonder what kind of book, you know – I mean, were they geared were they geared towards towards kids 8, 9, 10? Were they teen books? Well, the wonderful thing about it is that they, they were stories that – 
this woman, Maud Hart Lovelace, started telling to her own child. So they started when her child was five, and then they go up through, you know, when you're 20, and, and they become harder to read as they go along. So you can grow up. So them. where was the trip to to Oberammergau? Ober- that, that was that's a book called um, Betsy and the Great World, and she leaves the Midwest, you know, where I'm from, and uh, she's from Minneapolis, and she goes to Europe for the first time before the First World War, and she goes to Oberammergau, and I had taken that book with me when I was going to England as kind of comfort, you know, how you bring old, well, maybe not everyone, but something um, from home when you're traveling. And I was rereading this childhood book, and I thought, oh, that's so strange to play a biblical role year after year. What hmm. would it be like to play Pontius Pilate year after year, and what if you wanted to play Jesus? So that's kind of where it came from. Okay, so now what was the the image or 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 starting point for Eurydice? Oh, um, well... Uh, I suppose my father had died recently when I wrote that play. He died of cancer when I was um, 20. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was thinking about the afterlife and I was thinking about um, whether Eurydice met anyone in the afterlife and what what that journey was like from her point of view. Um, And I was also just so interested in that moment of looking back. And so I, I think I started that play from the end because I knew that I wanted... Eurydice to say Orpheus's name. I knew that I wanted her to be involved in the act of um, ruining everything. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so I remember walking down the street in New York. I think I was living in New York at the time and just seeing the image of them them turning towards each other and her saying his name. The clean house. The clean house. Um, I was interested in what would happen if you started a play – um, in another language. And I was interested in whether you could tell a joke in another language and have it be funny, like whether humor was communicated solely through language or if you could tell the structure of a joke, hmm. even if you're speaking another language. And that, of course, is you have the character of the woman who's meant to be cleaning the house mm-hmm. who really wants to be a comedian and at one point tells this very long joke entirely in is it Spanish uh, or Portuguese. Portuguese. Yeah. So <laughs> and it's to 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 I would say the majority of the audience, at least when I saw it, right. the joke was mystifying. Right. So I thought Portuguese would be better than Spanish because fewer people speak Portuguese. The thing I found as, as I was watching it, I was reminded of an old Monty Python sketch about a joke that was so funny. Uh, it would kill. Mm-hmm. And so you had to break it up because nobody could know the whole joke. And right. I thought of it as a, as a variant of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've spoken then about Dead Man's Cell Phone and just that image of, I guess, a man. In your image, was he seated up or was he slumped over? In my mind, he was sitting up, which is mm. a little strange because why wouldn't he – I, I always saw the back of his um, his head and a kind of stiff – I mean, you, you couldn't possibly die that way. I don't know why I imagine it that way. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So now we've, we've mentioned it a few times. Um, in the Next Room or the Vibrator play. Um, first, because you mentioned very early on about titles. Mm-hmm. 
the choice in this case to have either a subtitle or the the almost you know old fashioned feeling of of a title which which needs more explanation or counterpoint and whether you know used as recently by Edward Albee mm. for the goat or who is Sylvia as you say Tony Kushner at times has put put these subtitles um why in the next room or the vibrator play which could also be the end of almost every episode of Bullwinkle <laughs> which always had mm-hmm. a subtitle mm-hmm. well i uh, tend to still call it the vibrator play because that was my working title. I've always just called it the vibrator play because, as I said, I'm completely utilitarian about titles. And I called it that for a long time. And then when I finished the play, I thought, oh, this really isn't about vibrators. I mean, vibrators are a device in the play, but the play is really larger than that. And it's about marriage and intimacy and compartmentalization. And I thought, I don't want to mislead the audience into thinking that they're going to some campy sex farce when actually I want to re- redirect their attention. So I wanted the I wanted the title to just feel a little larger so that people could um so that people wouldn't wouldn't be misled. And it's funny because in Berkeley there was some brouhaha because people had assumed I'd change the title because the theater had asked me to censor the title, that that the, the the vibrator play was too risque, and that Berkeley Rep had wanted me to change it. And Hardly a theater that's ever no. shied away from being <laughs> no, they, adventurous. They could care less, you know. So it was my own decision. Hmm. But it was your decision to retain your original title. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that thought was still there. Well, yeah, and I and and you were talking about subtitles. I mean, I in a way, it's a nod to nineteenth-century melodrama. I love those old, those old melodramas that have a title, and you know, or he loved but lost her, you know, things like that. So I have to ask, what was the image or thought that inspired the in the next room? Well, that was a book. This book by Rachel P. Maines called "The Technology of Orgasm" that a friend who's a documentary filmmaker handed me and he said, I think you should read this. And I was just astounded by this notion that doctors used to treat women with vibrators for hysteria. I had no idea. So it was this historical fact or nugget. And I just thought, my God. And and then what further astounded me was that before they invented the vibrator, doctors would treat women manually um, for hysteria. I had no idea. So So that was the point of departure. And I thought, can this be a play? And, and I just thought I'd try. Given the title, certainly people going in might still have some expectations about what they're going in to see because you focused them on a particular prop. <laughs> you you know you've elevated that to a point of focus. Did you find people going in and having to adjust to the play once they realized it truly wasn't those things you said you didn't want them to think it was? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think they did have to adjust. Um, Especially by the end when the thing kind of cracks open it was it was clear to me that most of the audience members who 
had discomfort with the play were more uncomfortable with the real moments of human intimacy and not at all with um, stuff about a vibrator. I mean, that they, they tended to laugh at. Um, and then they tended to, I mean, not the whole audience, but particular audience members who seemed uncomfortable. It was really the moments of intimacy between husband and wife, for example, which you'd think in this day and age we would be fine with. So so for me, that was interesting that the things you'd think were subversive in the play actually weren't. Hmm. But the laughter, mm-hmm. had you written a comedy or were you getting laughs because people were either uncomfortable mm-hmm. with some of the things you were addressing or couldn't get past their own childish notions about what was not graphically but being portrayed in front of them i think the laughs were real i mean i think that i I, you know i i never intend to just write a straightforward comedy but i meant the play to be funny and i think i hope the humor was in service of some larger thing you know that humor in the plays opens up some kind of philosophical shift in perspective or some kind of emotional life that it that it's not just a one-liner that people laugh at though the show was produced by lincoln center theater with whom you'd worked before it was a case where because their main stage has been occupied for a couple of years by south pacific they put it in a broadway house and it was your first experience on broadway not entirely differently than what I was asking you about in relation to the MacArthur. Do you think there was another set of expectations given the venue in which the play was placed, which certainly was not – it's not that you'd written it saying this is my Broadway play. Mm-hmm. Oh, certainly. I mean previews on Broadway were an entirely different kettle of fish I found than previews on other – in other venues. In what way? <laughs> uh, well, the press was more aggressive. I found that they always seemed to have an agenda with an interview. I, I, I don't know. I just – all I know is that by the time the play opened, at the time I was pregnant with twins and um, the day after it opened, I went to my doctor and had an exam and they're like, you are going on bed rest today. <laughs> you can't leave your apartment. So I think, I mean, I certainly you could be pregnant with twins and have to go on bed rest anyway, but, but Broadway is stressful. Well, the fact of the matter is there are probably many playwrights who should be ordered on bed rest the day after a Broadway <laughs> opening, regardless of, of the medical need. Yeah, I mean, just right, all of them. <laughs> you, you had a completely legitimate excuse that no one could argue with. Yeah. Um, What struck me about that play is that, in contrast to some of your other plays, the fanciful elements were all held for, you referred to it a few moments ago, the moment when everything broke apart. And so as I was watching it, it seemed more literally real in the sense of a conventional narrative without flights of fancy. And then, of course, holding it to the end, it breaks into a scene of, of just extraordinary and almost incomprehensible beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, were you 
making a conscious effort with that play to shift from from some of the modes you'd been writing in? It wasn't conscious because I think so little of what we do is conscious. But I will say uh, the conscious part of it was that I wanted the the stuff about the vibrators to feel real. That I, I mean, I wanted to sort of trick the audience into thinking, oh, it's a lovely little 19th century period piece. And then I, I felt I could sneak in the content about the vibrator more easily <laughs> than if I had written something abstract. I'm sorry, I'm only chuckling <laughs> because nowadays we can say the vibrator is a relatively small, easily uh, hidden device. You you didn't exactly have something you could sneak in in that play. Right. They were enormous, those I early mean, the vibrators. power is dimming mm-hmm. and the machine's making noise. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was... Uh, <laughs> it didn't make a surreptitious entrance. That's true. Let's, let's say that. Um, and I've got to go back and ask, why did your friend, the documentary filmmaker, give you this book? And how does one give someone a book about the history of female hysteria and the use of electronic devices to relieve it? And, uh, you know, wrapped up with a bow saying, thought you'd enjoy this. Well, I t- it's my friend, his name is Luke Walden. I, he, I, he just knows me well, and I suppose he knew I would have an interest in the history of female sexuality, just knowing knowing my interest. He thought I, he could tell that I would think it was wild. I could have to say, as a man, I can't imagine giving that book to any, <laughs> any woman I know. Happily married. <laughs> you Under- <know> so- <laughs> understood. Yes, it would be very, very bad... Uh, you know, dating come up. Right, exactly. To, to say, you, <laughs> I find you very interesting. I think you'd enjoy this book. Um, now, you already have a show announced for next season uh, at the Goodman. Mm-hmm. How much can you tell us about it? Or sure, where are you in, in writing it? Well, it needs a rewrite, uh, but it's called Stage Kiss, and it's about actors kissing each other basically i think i after you know years of sitting in on rehearsals i'm so fascinated by the phenomenon of actors having to kiss each other on stage so i just thought i'll write a play about that Hmm. so it's essentially about two ex-lovers who meet in a revival of a terrible play um in new haven and so i got to write the play within the play too which is a kind of 1930s chestnut and they have to kiss each other over and over again in rehearsal. So it's it's a little bit about how their relationship um, endures, unravels, you know, through through this rehearsal process. Hmm. Well, that brings me to an interesting question, conveniently, which is we've been talking about you as a writer, and we talked about working with directors. What is the experience of finding? the people to speak your words and and how much say have you had i noticed maria dizia has appeared in a couple of your plays they were both directed by the same director Uh if i'm right so i don't know whether that's you like her he likes her you both like her Mm -hmm. does she you know i'm speaking so can you can you talk about yeah like with maria we both adore maria les and i both and um really fought for her coming you know, coming with the play. And I mean, I often fight for actors and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Um, I mean, basically writers have veto power. You can say, you know, I don't want this person in my play, but you can't say you must absolutely 
hire this person for my play. And that can be hard. Um, I've written um, uh, roles before for my friend Polly Noonan, who has done about, I don't know, 10 productions or something, maybe more. She's the village idiot and um, passion play, and she's done all those productions of passion play. So, I mean, I think once I find actors who speak my language, I just want to work with them again because I think sometimes there's this peculiar um, irony in some of the plays or lack of subtext, and not all actors can do that, and, and sometimes you can't even rehearse actors into the particular tone. So if people can immediately get the tone, I just want to work with them again and again. What do you mean by lack of sub- subtext? I've never heard an author say that about their own work. Well, I don't enjoy subtext. Um, I mean, maybe that's Pollyannish because maybe there's subtext when I don't think there is. But I think it's just bizarre, this notion that in acting schools that you say one thing perpetually and feel another thing. I think the great moments, the, the moments of epiphany, in one's life are moments where you're speaking something and feeling it intensely at the same time. And to me, that's where poetry comes from. So this notion that you're supposed to be a split subject on stage, saying one thing and feeling another thing, often is just kind of insane to me. And that's how a lot of actors are taught. Yet in real life, our moments of epiphany are sometimes when we stop thinking about what we say we're going to do and and go with our beliefs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, giving in to our emotions, taking away that split, mm-hmm. isn't isn't that part of a life on stage as well? Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I agree. Um, but I think the people I like best in life are people who have very little of that split, who are uncensored. Who are that in touch with their feelings all the time. Yeah, I guess that's true. And Hmm. so I tend to be interested in those people on stage more than I'm interested in people who have these social masks that they have to keep up until one seminal moment when the mask comes off. Huh. Well, as the person whose high school yearbook quote was from Kurt Vonnegut, the phrase – we are who we pretend to be, so we must mm. be very careful about who we pretend to be. Mm-hmm. I guess this is an interesting uh, sentiment to think about, that, mm-hmm. that you know, whoever we pretend we are is who we become, and therefore the subtext disappears or the pretense disappears. Yeah. What short story is that from? Oh, gosh. I, uh, it's actually from the novel Mother Night. Oh, okay. That's um, great. So – so always, always a favorite of mine. Um, you spoke earlier about the freedom that uh, the MacArthur Grant gave you not to have to either meet expectations or meet uh, the family budget by writing for television or film. Um, aside from the economic issues, does that appeal to you at all? If I could – adapt a play for film in a way that had a lot of integrity, I would be happy to. Or if I found some brilliant film director to work with, I would love to write a film. But I think the trepidation I have about film is exactly what we were talking about in terms of heightened language. I think film is not interested at all in heightened language. It's it's interested in people speaking 
in a kind of banal way and then fantastical images going around going on around them and that's just not my bread and butter so in a way it's it's exactly not what I'm trained to do hmm. um, and in a way novelists I think have a lot more in common with screenwriters than playwrights do because we're supposed to embed poetry in in the language itself and the dialogue and you're not supposed to do that on film yet you write plays film is always spoken of as a visual medium mm-hmm. television is is thought of a little more as a verbal medium mm-hmm. because at least until recently the scale of the image was always so small mm-hmm. you write moments into your plays which require incredible visualization mm-hmm. and and realization of fantastical moments mm-hmm. um so it's interesting to me that your focus is the language, yet the visual imagination seems so important. Or are those things that have been created that the directors say bring into your plays? No, I think you're right that visually – I should go back. I think you're right that that I'm a very visual writer. When I'm writing, I'm seeing what I'm writing, and the stage directions are very particular. But I think the difference between how I'm writing stage directions for plays and, and film is that in plays, you're still writing metaphor, or you're still writing for an imaginative space to be filled in, as opposed to filling it all in the way you would in a film. So just to give an example, the last line of Passion Play is, he gets on an enormous ship and sails away. And, you know, how do you do that? At the good one, we had this huge budget, so we actually had an enormous ship come down, and he, he went away on it. And and then at Yale, we didn't have quite that budget, so we had him fly away. And then when we did the space in a church, we thought, oh, what are we going to do for the last moment? And we'd kind of forgotten about the ship, so I thought Mark might just have him walk off stage and forget about the ship. And I emailed him and said, am I the only one who misses that ship? And so Mark, at the very last minute, had them construct um, – a sail, and um, he just walks up a staircase. Uh, what do you call those moving staircases? It's like a dolly or a step ladder. Yeah, like a step ladder, a moving step ladder. And then at the last minute, someone raises you know this very handmade sail on the step ladder. So you get the image of he gets on an enormous ship and sails away, but it's in a kind of. Um, you know, you're still filling in the gaps as a watcher. You're not actually seeing a real ship the way you would on a on a film. And, you know, it, it could be appealing to, to write a screenplay and actually see some enormous vessel. Uh, but I, I think what's tricky about film is you really need to meet a director who understands what you're doing because it's such a director's medium. And as a screenwriter, you just get steamrolled. Hmm. I want to ask very quickly, um, last year you did a version of Three Sisters for Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. Was that a commission? Yes. What is it like to work with the framework? And you've certainly done it with some of your own plays, but I presume you you hewed closer to Chekhov than you did with the myth mm-hmm. of, of Eurydice. Um, what's it like to work within the framework of, of another writer. I loved working on Three Sisters so much because he's such a master and sitting down and learning from him line by line and trying to think about what he was doing was this great discipline for me. 
I mean, it almost felt like sitting my in my apartment and doing math or knitting. I mean, because it, it felt more like a craft than when you write your own play. And, of course, you know how it's going to end, so you don't have the panic of writing a new play. But um, he's also a strange, strange playwright. I mean, people think of him as a naturalist, but Three Sisters is so strangely structured. Um, mm. You know, like what happens? It's, people are... People are talking. Someone gets engaged, but that's not really the point of the act. Suddenly there's a fire. Some more time passes. More people fall in love. I mean, it's it's a very strange um, way of moving through time. And I loved exploring that and also just exploring the Russian. I got to work with my sister-in-law who was Russian and also with a brilliant woman named Elise Theron who helped me line by line. And she would read speeches in Russian and she would say, this is how Vershinin talks. This is the rhythm of his language. This is how Tuzenbach speaks. It's staccato. And so trying to, to find that in English was fantastic. Well, in that, you just used the phrase moving through time. And I think that's an interesting assessment of all of your plays, um, sometimes very literally about people moving through time or periods in time. And hopefully uh, – Stage Kiss will uh, go from the Goodman as your other plays have gone to many other productions and other plays yet to come. And I just want to say, Sarah Rule, thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.